Father, we pray that you would be our vision this morning and that you would make yourself our vision through the preaching of your word, as you have through its reading and its praying and its, and its singing. Father, you're the king of heaven. You're the king of your church. You're the king of the whole earth. You're king in Cambodia. And over Brooks' efforts, our mission partner's efforts to learn the language there so she may speak the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of the king to men and women, old and young, in that place. Father, we do think of our mission partners who are alone this Sunday and alone this week, who nevertheless uh, see Christmas celebrated across the country, maybe on Facebook, who hear about it uh, through email, who long to be with family and friends. We pray that you would be to them, near to them, a comfort to them, that they would know that they are not alone, that they would know the presence and comfort of the Holy Spirit and that um, even as we pray now for Mark and Rachel and their kids in, in China, that you would be to them God and King, and that they would know that they are firmly and fixed underneath your rule, even in a place where it is not so readily apparent. Father, we look around us, and your rule is not seen in so many ways, and yet we know that Jesus is on his throne. He is executing his plan. He is bringing it about in exactly the right time. This book of Genesis is reminding us about your patient ways, your ways that take long years and stretches of life and lifetimes. And we tuck ourselves into that plan this morning and we accept our place in it. Help us to see with spiritual eyes where we are, who we are, and what you are, you are doing. It's in Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen. You may be seated. We'll open with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis will be in chapter 42 this morning. Genesis chapter 42, and the Bible provided for you, uh, that would be page 35. Merry Christmas, everybody. Once a year, it's so nice to see so many of you matching the auditorium. Uh, Each year so far, I look and I go, now that matches the carpet perfectly. Oh yeah, it's Christmas, and I've done the same thing. My Christmas present to you this year will be two sermons from Dan Kruver over the next two weeks on the incarnation. If we've spent our time if you will, looking at Jesus' incarnation in some indirect ways from the Old Testament. The Old Testament is all leading to the coming of the Messiah. Over the next two weeks, yes, after Christmas, we will look at the incarnation of Jesus in a more direct fashion through the lens and scriptures of the New Testament, specifically the book of Hebrews. So we're not done with Jesus' incarnation yet, just like we're not done with his resurrection after Easter. It's it's year-round truth. So we'll look forward to that, and I'll be picking back up in Genesis three weeks from now, and we'll just keep going. Christmas is about the uniting of heaven and earth, a nice thought, but easier said than done. When we talk about Christmas, we often make the point that Christmas is not about the gifts that we give, it's about the gift that God has given to us, and that is exactly true. But get this, you can't understand Christmas as God giving us anything until you understand Christmas as God coming to take something from us. We can't appreciate that Jesus came to give until we understand that Jesus came, Jesus came to take. We can't have what Jesus came to give unless we are willing for Jesus to have what Jesus came to take. We'll see what that something is as the sermon unfolds. Uh, We begin many years before Jesus came in a time of famine and in the home of one ancient 
family. We are rummaging around the pantry when things begin. Let's read beginning in verse one. We'll read through the beginning part of verse seven together. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you guys look at one another? And he said, behold, I've heard that there's some grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. And we will stop right there. Genesis is the beginning of the story of heaven and earth. And it begins great, shiningly, swimmingly. Things started out great and then went bad. Adam sinned against the creator of the universe by assuming that he knew better than he did. He sinned against heaven. And this led to two things. First, it led to guilt before God on the part of any who would be born to Adam, starting with Adam. Not a mere feeling of guilt, but an objective reality of guilt before a holy God. Second, it led to alienation. And alienation leads to a whole lot of hiding. Alienation internally, within oneself. We live in contradictions with ourselves. We speak out of two sides of our mouth. We say one thing and don't want to believe it the next day. We know things to be true about ourselves, and yet we hide from the truth that we know even about ourselves. Alienation socially with others. We live in conflict with others. Married folks, can I get an amen? Uh, In every human relationship, and it began in the garden in the first marriage, they're hiding from one another and pointing, pointing fingers. We hide the truth about ourselves from one another. And alienation vertically from God, and of course, every other form of alienation has its root in this. We live in isolation from God. We live on the run from God. There's guilt before God, alienation. There's pollution of ourselves. Now our motives and our desires and our words and our actions and our thoughts are all bent and broken and set even against God. We're rebels in his world. Everyone born of Adam is guilty, alienated in a variety of ways and polluted by sin. What a mess. Well, in today's chapter, a very special circumstance brings a whole lot of this uh, together and exposes the heart of the matter. A circumstance involving a natural disaster that threatens the future of humanity and populations, a geopolitical negotiations between one of the world's most powerful people at the time and some of the world's most uh, powerless people of all time. Stick with the script. Uh, Sibling rivalry, including a cold case for suspected murder, and so many lies. And here we are. And what happens now, we will watch the circumstance draw out like a syringe, draw out, bringing to the surface something significant out of the human heart, something absolutely terrifying, something we all in this room must face if we will face God 
and live. Well, if we track the movement of the story and just follow the geography of the thing, we follow this group of brothers from Canaan to Egypt and back to Canaan, from a kitchen table to the seat of power in the world, the highest throne, if you will, back to a kitchen table. Three movements for three parts in today's sermon, grain, guilt, and God. We'll go with G's. Let's begin with some grain, verses one through five. The setting for the story begins in the kitchen pantry. It revolves around a specific need, a need for grain. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? There was a problem. Not only are they hungry, but they now have to do something about it. Will someone please go get the bread? Someone please somewhere get some bread? And they don't appear to be in the mood, at least the sons don't. I'm not a huge fan of Aaron, so I can kind of relate to what's going on here. They're just kind of hoping it'll figure itself out. Jacob has had it with these guys. What are you guys doing just standing there looking at one another? You get the sense of condescension in the, in the line. That's actually there. Uh, what are you even doing? Get out of here. Nothing in the fridge? Well, go get some food. I've heard there's some food in Egypt. Haven't you heard there's some food in Egypt? Go to Egypt. Many years earlier, uh, these same sons were upset at Jacob for doing nothing about their sister Dinah's suffering violently at the hands of a man. Now he's upset at them for not doing anything about the food. The whole family just lined with passive men. This larger story that we're inside, this Joseph story, the back end of Genesis has two panels that are running side by side. They began together, recall, in chapter 37, The brothers were all together in Canaan. Recall that Jacob favored Joseph, made him a coat with long sleeves, saying, we think uh, the inheritance will go to him. This is my royal son. Royal overtones with that coat. Joseph flaunted it a bit. The brothers hated him for it. When Joseph had a dream about his brothers bowing down to him, a dream twice repeated, which should signal something. Maybe God is speaking to this family again as he has down the generations. Um, And he doesn't just go to the holiest one with the perfect motive. So Joseph gets this double dream here. Everyone should know what's happening. Or at least be on high alert for what God may be doing. Nope, they'd have none of it. They hated their brother. And at the next best opportunity, he's gone. They threw him into a pit for dead. And then they figured they'd cash in on him. So they sold him to some traders who were going by. Never to see him again. And as they said, we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Cruel. 37 ends with Joseph being sold in a few ways and ending up in a special house, a servant of Potiphar. And so we have two panels. One panel, Joseph's brothers, and then the next is Joseph in very different places, heading into some very different circumstances, world apart for 20 years. The two panels mark the starkest contrast. On the first panel, after Joseph is sold, we watch Joseph's brother, one of the brothers, Judah, Judah, who neglects his family, sleeps with his daughter-in-law. He's a deceiver like his father. It's just really, really bad. Goes to a prostitute. Then on the other panel, there's Joseph, and he seems to flourish wherever he is planted. The Lord is with him. He has integrity. He's a hard worker. He is the opposite of his brothers. He was promoted in Potiphar's house, thrown in prison for keeping his integrity with a woman no one understood except him. But even in prison, he was assigned responsibility. No fun to be there, but given charge over other prisoners. And then when Pharaoh discovered his knack for interpreting dreams and his wisdom, he placed him over all of Egypt. 
So here we have a contrast of character, but also of success. Well, today's chapter opens back in Canaan. So we've been with Joseph a few chapters, and now we're, we're back in Canaan. How's everyone getting along back in Canaan? How are the brothers doing? Well, the first hint comes in what Jacob says to his sons. Why are, do you look at one another? He's irritated, these grown men not taking responsibility for the welfare of their family. Quite different from Joseph, opposite actually. They eagerly sent Joseph on a trek so many years ago, however long and however long a distance uh, they might imagine, uh, but they aren't willing to take one themselves on this day. A second hint as to how it's all going comes uh, with, with what Jacob does to his brothers. He, he sends his brothers, excuse me, these sons, uh, on a journey for food, but he holds one back. Verse 4, he did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Hmm. Maybe he's not so um, aloof after all. When we left Jacob off, he was wailing at the death of his son and didn't seem to hold the sons in suspicion at all. Recall that Benjamin and Joseph are from the same mother, Rachel. They're his favorites. He's holding the other favorite back. There are no facts to indicate that Joseph was murdered, but all his senses tell him that his sons may not be innocent of his blood. Their crimes have remained hidden, their character not so much so. It strikes a note of suspicion when he holds Benjamin back, not just for what might happen to him on the road, but what might happen to him with his brothers. Well, at this point, we really ought to think that God is done with the rest of this family and that the line will go through Joseph. It'll go through Joseph. We've had some dreams regarding Joseph. Joseph is, um, you know, the world's coming to Joseph. The, the God is blessing the world through this son of Abraham. We ought to think that this whole other set of brothers will just dissolve and we will pick up uh, with Joseph and continue. But look at verse 5. Thus the sons of Israel, hmm, he's been calling him Jacob. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Interesting, he calls him Israel here. You might have noticed that Jacob gets a new name, Israel, so many chapters ago, and then he keeps getting called Jacob. Like, didn't he get a new name? Uh, yes, he got a new name, and both will be used. Why is one name used at one time and not another? Uh, we don't get an explanation of that. What it appears to be the case is that Jacob is used in more private social dealings. Israel is used when we maybe zoom out a little bit and see Jacob in the context of the plan of God. And so he's Jacob on the page, but then it says the sons of Israel. It's not someone different. That's him with his new name that God had given him. Sons of Israel came. An indication that even as we see things are dicey here, that God's going to do exactly as he promised, and he will do it through these, these sons even. His private name and his public name. Grain. Basic sustenance has these brothers on the road to Egypt. It's been 20 years since they sold Joseph. He is not top of mind. What do they expect? Probably to buy some grain. They will come home with grain, as expected. But they will come home with something scary in their sacks and something heavy, very heavy, soul-crushingly heavy on their minds. We're ready to leave Canaan now. 
grain. Here's the word, guilt. Guilt, verses 6 through 26. We've moved from Canaan and now we're in Egypt. Joseph is governor. He's in total charge. Verse 6, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him hmm, with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and he, he recognized them. He knew who they were. What does he do? Will he hug them? A little less warm but cordial, will he shake their hands or whatever they would do as a matter of custom in that context? Let's watch and listen. He treated them like strangers. He spoke roughly to them. Why do you come, uh, where do you come from, he said. And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he dreamed of them. And he said to them, you're spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We're honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it's the nakedness of the land you've come to see. And they said, we're your servants. are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in, the, in Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you're spies. No hugs, no handshakes. He gives them a cold shoulder. Understatement. Two questions. What are these brothers thinking? Why don't his brothers recognize him? Let's ponder that. Well, in the first place, they thought he was dead, in all likelihood dead. He had a new name. So when they meet him, he's not going by Joseph. That might have been a giveaway, or at least a giveaway to look at bone structure. Is it Joseph or it reminds me of Joseph? Wait a second, he looks like Joseph. He's got a new name given to him by the Pharaoh. Uh, he spoke the Egyptian language. He didn't speak Egyptian when he left. He was dressed like an Egyptian. Maybe he walked like an Egyptian, I don't know. Uh, He was groomed like an Egyptian, so he would have had a beard and such, uh, like his brothers did, Hebrews. Uh, He would have been all trimmed up and cleaned up, and he he wouldn't have looked like Joseph. Joseph wasn't top of mind, and he wasn't giving it away with his appearance and how he spoke and how he was addressed or any of this. So why don't his brothers recognize him? Well, that's a good good enough reason. Second question, if Joseph recognizes them... And why did he treat them like strangers or worse? Was he vengeful? Finally, all the bitterness worked up and festered is about to overflow. We've watched him at his best, but deep down, he has it in for his brothers. Was he undisposed to reconciliation and and forgiveness at this point? Hard to tell. Or maybe it's easy to tell. Maybe he just really looks like he's not interested in that. Let's rehearse Joseph's response. Let's just watch it. Notice how he treats them. He treats them like strangers. And of course, they're not strangers. But in another way, they kind of are, right? It's been 20 years. In fact, he does them a favor by not treating them like he knows them. 
attempted murderers. Second, notice how he speaks to them. He speaks roughly to them, harshly to them. They'll say so to their father when they return home. Notice what he says to them. He accuses them of being spies. Now, we'll just pause here. We'll spend a few weeks on, on this matter of Joseph's handling. Um, I don't know that there's a template here for conflict resolution. So one option is to accuse them of being a spy. Uh, we're gonna, I, there are some things to see here in Joseph's response. I'm not sure that, that a pattern for sort of handling these things is in order. It is a unique geopolitical situation. It's a very unique world crisis situation, certainly a unique family situation. I think what we want to train our attention on in this sermon is mostly the brothers and what's going on in their hearts. See where I'm going with that. Um, And in the sermons ahead, at what Joseph is after and why Joseph does what he does. And maybe stay off the prescription question where we tend to get a little hung up can I? He did. Can I? Should I? Uh, This kind of thing. So in other words, we'll train our attention on the brothers mostly in this sermon, and then we'll train our attention on the motives and the aims that Joseph is after as we continue ahead. And I'll allude to them in this sermon, what I think he's doing. But in any case, he's accused them of being spies. Let's keep going. Fourth, notice what he does with them. Notice what he does with them. Verse 15, by this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, you're surely spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. So he treats them like strangers. He speaks roughly to them. He accuses them of being spies, and then he sticks them in prison. This is starting to look like the person offended who so overreacts that it conceals, cancels, excuse me, out the offense, and now they're the problem. We seem to have so many patriarchs failing in our story. Could this be Joseph's collapse? Perhaps, at this point. Joseph has been the most promising but perhaps there's not much more here to see in him. He holds one hostage and sends the rest to go to the father. Uh, Verse 18, seems like he changes his mind or his plan develops. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. If you're honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody Let the rest go and carry grain for the famine to your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words may be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Well, that's what Joseph is doing. But what is Joseph really doing? Why is he doing this? Vengeance, total moral collapse, disorientation, maybe an emotional collapse and all this just came out in a moment. Or was he acting in wisdom? Is he belligerent or is he brilliant? Hmm. We'll have to read between the lines to discern Joseph's thoughts. But we don't have to read between the lines to get the thoughts of his brothers at this moment. We have to want to get in everybody's head. We can get in somebody's head here. 
ever follow those stories of a hot mic, the news anchor who says a few things they're really thinking after they think they're not on the air, uh, and then they're on the air, and it's all over the internet. Well, here's a hot mic, verse 21. Then they said to one another, in truth, we're guilty concerning our brother in that we saw his distress of his soul and he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress is coming upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you to sin against, not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them for there was an interpreter between them. Oops. Um, there's an interpreter working between their language and, and, and Joseph's. And they don't realize that Joseph actually knows their, their language. He just heard what they were saying. In truth, we're guilty concerning our brother. Let's stop here and reflect on that word guilty. Guilt. Well, what is it? Why has it come to mind here? And what can we do with it? What is it? It's not merely a feeling of shame or regret or sorrow. It's an objective reality before God. It is being in God's debt. It is being uh, wrong before him. It is being in a place of injustice. It's an objective reality. If we feel it, it's because we're tuning into how things actually, how things actually are. Now, why has it come to mind here for these brothers? Well, they don't know they're in the presence of Joseph, but somehow this offense has come to mind. These guys have been carrying this thing around for 20 years. Best we can tell, they haven't done anything with it. They've been busy about their lives. But then in a moment, they're being interrogated by the most powerful man in the world and accused of being spies. And here in a moment, they're about to be thrown in prison. A great trouble is befalling them. And this old offense, this old guilt is surfacing. What they did was wrong, and they know that what they did was wrong. Now they are being wronged, and they're remembering what they did. It has come to mind in the course of their own crisis. Guilt. What is it? Why has it come to mind here? And what do we do with our guilt? When we speak harshly with a loved one, commit a sin in secret, when we steal, when we lie. Oh, there are sin lists in the New Testament. Well, paragraph full. When we disobey our parents, all kinds. Well, there are three things we might do that sometimes we do a little bit of all of them. We make our own little guilt-handling cocktail. We each have our own guilt solution. We may externalize it. That's the first thing we might do with our guilt. We may externalize it through excuses. Uh, yes, it was wrong, but given the circumstances, it was understandable. Uh, Dad was showing favorites and and, and that was very damaging to us all. And Joseph was proud and boasting and that, that triggered our jealousy and our, our hate. And so that's why we did what we did. That would be an excuse, externalizing it through an excuse. Maybe we externalize it through redirection. We simply take the balance of guilt that is ours and we transfer it on to another person. So we've committed some sins and maybe they have or they're involved in some fashion. So we just make a transfer. So just transfer that 
balance over to the other person, or at least most of it until we feel good enough. Now, you think of the log and the speck problem in, in uh, Jesus' words to us. It is a problem. We all have this problem. Every one of us has the problem, sort of a shrinking sense of our own wrong and, and an enlarging sense of the wrong of others. And when the wrong of others in, intersects with the wrong that, that we've committed, it can be hard to separate them and just focus on ourselves. You all know what I'm talking about. The Bible knows us so well. We, we may externalize our guilt as one way of dealing with it. Another way of deli- dealing with it would be to rationalize our, our guilt away. We may rationalize it by redefining the action. Actually, it looks bad, but actually it's good. Uh, people have just had that wrong. Uh, that's so old school. Your parents may have talked that way, or in previous centuries, or that's so Bible, that's ancient. I mean, the Bible is a really old book. We are enlightened now. We can see these new things. And so what is sin is actually rationalized as, as good. We use the mind to weave a story that inverts good and evil. And the Bible describes this as a darkened understanding, an ignorance of the heart, a callousness. And that's why it says we need a renewal of the mind in righteousness and holiness. We use the mind to weave explanations and stories and to come out the other side right, even if everybody else is wrong. Or we may rationalize it by reminding ourselves of all the good things that we've done in contrast with the bad thing that we have done. So let's be compensating. Um, I did this thing, it was terrible, but these other things that I have done, those things are good. Uh, I've spent 20 years not murdering people and throwing brothers into the pit. I have nine brothers left. (laughs) One brother went into the pit. I've got nine of them. I mean, this is like, I've lost one. I've lost one. That would have been a good one. Externalize, we may rationalize, we may also compartmentalize our guilt. Uh, That was then, this is now. If I ignore it, it'll go away. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. It was a long time ago. What happened that night stays in that night. What happened in that conversation stays in that conversation. No one else heard. As it is, no one else will ever know. And so we compartmentalize it. All these responses to guilt are a form of suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. That's what we all do after Adam. Those of us born in Adam, we're born weaving stories and compartmentalizing and externalizing our our problem. They're an attempt to avoid the scariest thing to do with our guilt, and that is to own our guilt. To own what we've done, to own what it did to others, full stop, to own the moral truth of what we did, that it was wrong and not merely hurtful, and to own the consequences for what we, what we did. For until we own the consequences, no doubt others are picking them up. We think of John chapter 1, where we call God a liar if we say we haven't sinned. A part of coming right with the universe is coming right with God and speaking truthfully about our our problem. This is what Christmas calls us to do, to speak truthfully about our problem. It enables us to do that with a very good message next to our bad message about ourselves, which we'll get to in a moment. But back to the brothers. What might owning it have sounded like on their lips? Uh, We put our brother in a pit and we sold him to traitors. We were originally intending to see him die, uh, but we were satisfied to make some money off of him. We did this because of hate and jealousy in our own hearts, figuring these sins were justified because of the sins of others. We even ignored the cries for help and blew past the warnings and pleadings of our brother Reuben. 
This decision we made has had terrible and far-reaching consequences for others. Uh, This is not what they did with it. This is not what they did with it. But now, so many years later, because God is so patient with us, they're all still alive, and God is doing something with them. Verse 21, they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. This guilt has haunted them. It's surfacing in the context of this crisis. And they're, they're naming it with language like guilt. That's good. They're, they're, they're expanding on it, condemning themselves. We even did it in the, when he was crying out and he begged us and we didn't listen. Through this circumstance, could God be awakening their conscience to their own sin? Through this circumstance, could God be confronting their excuses, their rationalizations, their redirections, compartmentalizations, and their compensations with the cold, hard truth of their guilt? In a moment that snuck up on them by surprise, they thought they were going to the store to get bread. Their guilt has been awoken in their heart. And that, friends, that's a really good thing, even though it's a really hard thing. The only thing worse than being guilty of sin is being guilty and not caring. And that's true for believers and unbelievers. See that none of you has an evil, unbelieving heart hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for you are Christ's if you continue. And so that's on all of you. It's on all of us. Only thing worse than being guilty of sin is being guilty and not caring. Now Joseph heard all of this, right? He's listening. So what is Joseph's response? Verse 24. Then he turned away from them and he wept. He wept. Why did he weep? What do these tears, what do these tears mean? What must they have thought when he ran away as they're having this conversation? These tears represent certainly a flood of emotion. Here by surprise, he's been confronted with his farthest memories and farthest family. He was on a prison floor for years and he had no short amount of time to ponder all of this and to pray to God concerning all of this. These tears, I believe, represent something else as well. We'll explore that in a few weeks ahead. For now, let me just point this out. He called them spies, right? Maybe that's because they called him a spy. He put them in prison, right? Maybe that's because they put him in a pit. He's keeping their brother back alone, right? Why? Maybe because he was kept back alone for so many years years. We might say all this is vindictive except for the tears and except for a word that we read twice. Did you catch it? That you shall be tested, that your words shall be tested, that you may be vindicated. Perhaps they think they're being tested to see if they're not actually spies But perhaps there's yet another layer to this test that isn't so obvious 
to them. Something that Joseph is testing, something that Joseph really, really wants to know about his brothers. Something underneath his own tears. Grain, guilt. Now listen to what they say when they make a discovery on their way back. Verse 27. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? Grain, guilt, God. Verses 27 through 38. Why do they mention God here? Well, deep down they know he saw it all, right? They know he saw it all. And deep down they know it was evil. In Genesis chapter 9, for the life of one taken, a life will be taken. We're all made in the image of God. You don't take the life of a man. No doubt that would have been taught down the line. They would have had that fully fixed in their mind as they chuck the image bearer, Joseph, their hated brother, into the pit. They sold him. That's maybe a little bit better than murder. But they don't know what's happened to him. This has been on their mind. They know it was evil. And they know their dad doesn't know what happened. But they know deep down that God does. In fact, this is where guilt comes from. This inner sense that every human has that God is God. If there is no God, then guilt is merely a feeling, maybe an evolved feeling, a mechanism, something that serves some type of productive social purpose in advancing the species. But we would say from Scripture, and I'll say to you from Scripture, that the feelings of guilt that we have, where they're feelings of guilt from actual sin, are, are objective because we are actually guilty before God. There is a God, and that's why they're speaking this way. Remember what they said earlier, verse 21, they said to one another, in truth, we're guilty concerning our brother, and that would be true. But now they say, what is this that God has done to us? And so we see how all of our social, horizontal, if you will, sins are ultimately seen by and are an offense against the the God who is the ruler of the universe, and he's over us all. That's why they mention God here, I think. Uh, They know better. Uh, What does this recognition do for them? Well, in this unfolding crisis, they are being forced to reckon with that long compartmentalized truth. They did not recognize Joseph in Egypt. But having been confronted now, they're starting to recognize themselves. Their consciences were being awakened to the real problem in their sin against Joseph, or at least they're being willing now to put words to it. Is broken fellowship with God the biggest loss in any of our sins? Yes, it is. And friends, restored fellowship with God is the greatest gain in the confession of our sins. Certainly at conversion, when we receive the forgiveness of sins and the covering of Jesus' blood, we stand justified before him, but ongoingly as Christians, we're told to confess our sins. And yes, the matter of our relationship with God is the first matter. And it's on the page here and it's starting to to come out. 
The first movement in that direction is to sense the one that we've truly offended and to sense that we've truly offended him is actually a good thing. For when you start to hear God's name on your, on your lips as you talk about your life and sin, that may mean things are getting heavier and harder, but that may mean as well that you're actually getting closer to him. Before we tie up the story, and there's a paragraph or so left, let me ask, what is God doing in your life on this question of guilt? You know, Jesus doesn't wonder what you're thinking. He knows exactly what you're thinking. He doesn't wonder about what happened so many years ago uh, to that brother. Uh, He knows exactly what happened so many years ago. He does not suspect things about your past. He knows them. Only a few weeks ago, Abe took us to a well in Samaria where Jesus knew a woman's history quite well and shocked her with the revelation that, yes, he knew she had many husbands and the one she was with was not her husband. Jesus would shock you with what he knows about you quite well. What is it that God's doing in your life on this question of guilt? And what are you doing with that? Externalizing it? As it emerges, compartmentalizing it, rationalizing it. It will only work for so long. One of the greatest difficulties with owning our sin and our guilt is that, friends, we cannot bear the weight of it. And isn't that why we spend so much time trying to figure out how to be right, even when we know we're wrong? We cannot bear the weight of our sin. You cannot bear the weight of your sin. If you are outside of Christ and you have found an admission of guilt and sin to be difficult, or maybe you've spent years weaving sort of deeply philosophical explanations for the good and the bad in the world and human prob- the human problem, um, that we would say, I would say from Scripture, is all just a suppression of the basic truth that you're guilty before a holy God. And what are you doing with that? The reason why you've woven the stories and the reason why we all weave stories from our birth is because we can't afford to be wrong here. We can't afford to be guilty because we can't bear the weight of it. But here's the good news. God God calls you to do more than to own your guilt, but to let him take it from you. And so you and I can say this morning, friends, I am guilty and I am not counted guilty. These sins that haunted these men, we have the full story. Praise God, we live and we do. Praise God, we have this mystery now revealed, how God would bring all of this about, how he would reconcile heaven and earth and man and God and what he would do with our guilt. We have an answer. And we can say, I'm guilty and I'm justified. I am not counted guilty at the same time. And you can say that this morning. And I hope that's what you're doing with your guilt this morning. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And the way that he did that was through a cross, where on that cross he became sin for us, where he took on himself the sin and the guilt of you and me. Let's finish up with, let's finish up the story. What are these brothers going to do with their sin I pray you give your sin to God, your guilt to God. Jesus came to die to take that from you. What are these brothers doing with theirs? Do they run to confess it? Do they begin praying and crying out to God? 
on their trek home. No, they come home to their father in Canaan and tell him all that had happened. There's a good bit of spin. It's subtle in the story. We'll read verse 29 to 34. When they came to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, the man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly with us and took us to be spies in the land. And we said to him, we're honest men and we've never been spies. We were 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, by this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine for your household and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you're not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. Uh, It's always so subtle here, but there's a number of points of spin here. They shift words around for emphasis. They speak differently about Joseph and Benjamin, depending on whether they're in Joseph the governor's presence or their dad's presence. They omit mention of the imprisonment or of Simeon's detention there. He's just left there. They replace the threat of having their brother kept with the benefit of trading in the land, and they say nothing about the money discovered on their way back. <laughs> Jacob is uneasy, and he should be. They've, they've subtly moved points of emphasis and, and details around so the things sound a little bit better, and they're just used to doing that. This next scene doesn't help. Verse 35, as they emptied their sacks, uh-oh, in front of their dad, Behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they had their father saw, when their father saw their bundles of money, they were, they were afraid. And what's Jacob's reaction? Does Jacob speak to the Lord now? Does he fear the Lord? No, he sees only his trouble and himself. Does he lead the sons in responding in a godly way to this trouble? Verse 36, no. You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. That's the speech. Me, me, and then me. Here's an unreasonable attempt to advance a solution. Verse 37 from Reuben. Father, kill my two sons if I do not bring them back to you. Put them in my hands and I will bring them back to you. He's like, great, so... If they don't bring back Simeon, then I get to kill two of my grandkids. He's trying. Jacob doesn't trust them. And he said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you were to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Shaol to the grave. His boys, for as bad as they are, are actually in a better place than Jacob here. Feeling hunted by God is is a better place than, than not pondering him at all. Stepping back here then, this has been a story that we've read this morning of humans trying to read humans. Joseph could not read his brothers. Jacob could not read the sons. The sons didn't know who they were talking to. And this has been a story of humans hiding things from humans and of humans hiding things from God. It is one story in a long string of stories that follow from Genesis chapter three. And a story that hints at how humans cannot finally 
in the end hide from God. For there is one who sees our actions and intentions with precision even better than you and I do. Back to that topic of heaven and earth. What is the big problem keeping us apart from God and heaven apart from earth? It's the problem of guilt. Friends, if heaven unites to earth, you and I have to go. If heaven unites to earth, you and I can't stay. It doesn't matter if it was 20 years ago or 20 minutes ago or 20 seconds ago, our sin separates from God. It alienates us from God. And our broken human relationships are only a symptom of that deeper problem. And we're starting to see that deeper problem come to the consciousness of these brothers on the page. Guilt is our big problem. If heaven unites to earth, we can't stay unless, unless heaven comes down to take our guilt first. And that's exactly why we find the Lord of glory in a manger at Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would be our vision. And you are our vision. You have brought us a word concerning yourself. And seeing you more clearly, we see ourselves more clearly now. And Father, we thank you that in seeing ourselves more clearly, we're seeing you even more clearly. For we know that you are not merely holy and just, but you are merciful and you are gracious and you're slow to anger and you're patient with us 20 years patient with these characters and still at work on them. We thank you that you're patient with us and still at work with us. And Father, we thank you for the revelation of the mystery of Christ, that in him there is an answer to the question of how you would unite heaven and earth and how our guilt would be taken away so that we might stand before you and not die but live. Father, we thank you for being our treasure. We thank you that in our longing and in our darkness, the light of life has come and he has come in Jesus and the King and his kingdom has dawned and we are his people. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.